Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction and free shipping. And that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Hi everyone and welcome to Confessions of a Debut Novelist with me, your host, Chloe Timms. In this episode, I'm talking to Kate Dillon about her YA novel, Mindwalker. Kate graduated from the University of Arts London and is a video editor by day, science fiction and fantasy author by night. In this episode, Kate is very frank and open about what it's like writing a genre that's tricky to sell and the balance between writing what you want to write versus the reality of whether you want to get published. We also talk about how her ideas often start with a single opening sentence and the skill of writing commercial prose. But first, here's Kate with an excerpt from Mindwalker. It's impossible to ignore an alarm that's going off inside your head, which is probably why Syntex put it there instead of on my bedside table. The blasted thing screams across three different octaves, Growing so loud and relentless, it rattles the nerves inside my teeth. Christ, that was. I curse and throw a pillow over my face, half a second before I remember why that's a terrible idea. Too late. The jolt of electricity surges through my brain. It's only the tiniest bit of current, barely even a spark. But damn, it hurts. Every single time. You'd think I'd have learnt my lesson by now. Urgent alerts aren't optional. Jarvis has already turned the lights on in my room and their glare is bouncing off the bare white walls. Brighter than is polite for, ugh, 4.14am. It's no wonder I feel like death is tap dancing inside my skull. Lena and I were drinking until past one. Status report, I bark, because there's no point wasting words berating the computer in my head. Most of the other walkers don't even bother naming their units, but I've never liked the term it much and sip short for Cerebral Intelligence Processor, felt too clinical for me, so I named him after the AI bot from this pre-annihilation movie Dad and I used to watch, back before my decision to join the program drove us apart. I downloaded the actor's voice print and everything, so that they'd sound the same. Peter something, I think. Or maybe it was Paul. In my defense, I was eight at the time, and it seemed like a good idea. Incoming mission, Jarvis tells me. Confirm clearance code to commence data stream. And just like that, I'm fully awake. Hi, Kate. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today to discuss your debut YA novel, Mindwalker. Thank you so much for having me, Chloe. I'm really excited to be here because, you know, I just love talking. 
about myself and my book so much. I'm going to attempt to not be terrible at it. <laughs> so why don't you start by introducing your novel and telling us what Mindwalker is all about? Sure thing. Uh, so Mindwalker is a YA kind of crossover sci-fi. It's uh, set in a neon dystopia and it's about a girl with a computer in her head who can take over other people's minds. Brilliant. And we get thrown into this world straight away from page one. There's no messing about. We go oh, yeah. to the action. So I know from speaking to you and um, visiting your website and reading acknowledgements that this book has been a long time in the making and it's gone through several iterations, several different versions. So I was wondering whether you could take us back right to the beginning. Where did you first get the idea from? Well, funny story. I have absolutely no idea where the actual <laughs> idea came from. All I know is that I was walking down. I, I lived in Australia at the time and I lived at the top of a massive hill and I was walking down the hill to the train station and the opening line of the book popped into my head. And it was, it's impossible to ignore an alarm that's going off inside your head. Was that because it was very early in the morning and I was going to work? I don't know, but it popped into my head and it kind of like, by the time I was climbing the hill back up after work, it was still there and I was noodling around with it. And um, actually that's not uncommon for me. Most of my books start with a first line and then the whole book kind of builds around that. It's very rare actually that first lines in my books change. Um, so yeah, so the first line happened and I was like, okay, you know what? I'm just gonna sit down and see what happens. And just kind of put down a few words. It's uh, I call it writing a concept chapter, which is how I start all my books. And I sort of noodle around with ideas and see what happens in that chapter. Cause I plan nothing. I'm pure chaos all the way <laughs> down. Um, and yeah, and that's sort of where it was like, okay you can't ignore an alarm that's going off inside her head. Okay, so she's got an alarm in her head. So that felt technological. So obviously we're in the future so that's the vibe I kind of push for and then everything kind of built from there and so once you've done this concept chapter are you happy to just let the rest kind of flow out or do you think a bit more and do maybe a little bit of planning or is it just kind of word vomit on the page a bit of both actually at this stage and especially now and uh, that I have kind of an agent and writing community around me I usually send it off to some people because I have horrible market instincts like terrible uh and so I, I like to run things by by friends or by my agent to just to make sure that it actually has legs that it's not just complete random stuff that they're going to be like ooh not sure about this and that has happened before I've had you know openings to books that have gone nowhere I've had books that you know felt like a good idea and then totally just didn't work um so yeah so I sort of I send that out to a couple of people get a few ideas and then it's really an excitement thing for me like if it comes back and even if it comes back and they're just like you know what really like this not sure how easy it's going to be to sell like am I still excited do I want to do it or has my brain already moved on to other things uh, with Mindwalker, it was one of two concepts um, concepts that I was working on at the time, and I just kept coming back to it over the other one. So I was like, okay, I think Brain wants to do this one. Mm. So do you think it's a gut instinct then to know whether it's worth sticking with? Well, partly, I guess, partly the feedback you get, but also you know in yourself that there's something there that's going to work. I think so. And it's weird because going to work in publishing doesn't necessarily like I think a lot of stories can work and be amazing books and still not hit on the publishing side of things so for me it's really 
kind of like, and I'm not one of those writers who has a million ideas at any given time. It's weird because by the time I get to the middle of a book, I am convinced that is the last book I'll ever write. That's it. There's no more ideas. The well has gone dry. That's it. It's all downhill from here. And like new ideas don't tend to pop up until I've had a little bit of space um, to kind of look for them. So it's not really like, you know, I had this whole wealth of ideas that I'm just kind of like, you know what? Feedback said this is a hard sell. I'm going to move on to this one. It's sort of like I'm always kind of playing in a ballpark of one, maybe two, three, if I'm having a really, you know, great month kind of ideas to choose from. So at that point, it's really like, even if they're not all super hot or super marketable, I just have to pick the one that's resonating the most. Mm. I am really relieved to hear that you also are not an ideas person because I say this all the time. I'm not an ideas person. So it's going to be a real relief to hear it coming from another, another writer when they say I'm not an ideas person. Cause I think it's more common that you hear people go, I've got six ideas and I'm just deciding which one to go with. Nope. Nope. Absolutely (laughs) not. I always feel like, I think that sometimes makes me feel a little bit broken. Like, am I doing this wrong? Am I missing something that other writers have? But I think, our brains just work very differently and my brain is like this is what we're doing today or for the next 16 months as it turns out writing a book takes a long time um and then only once I've had kind of a little bit of space to breathe and that's done does my brain go here is something new to think mm-hmm. about yeah like you said I think it's important to have that space so going back to the early stages of this book your obviously your world building for this book is immense and you've had to put in so much work and it's a really ambitious world but I noticed that in your acknowledgements you said the world building came at a much later point and your story just was like plot points and characters and you haven't really done so much of the world building so can you remember kind of what your starting point was for the world okay it's uh you know what we use <laughs> we use this term in fantasy more but I'm going to reappreciate it reappropriate it for a sci-fi which is basic bitch sci-fi basically think of the most generic template sci-fi world you can think of and that's generally my starting point um during the first drafts I put in as little effort as I can get away with because for me the first draft is about character and plot and so that's I mean those are the things that draw me to a book I'm like the world building is it's not my least favorite part because obviously good world building makes a good novel great but it's the like you know I really get drawn into character and plot Mm. so that's the part I focus on first and so my world building kind of supports that but it doesn't do much else in the first draft it's really just about figuring out the story because like I said I don't plan I'm a complete pantser I make it up as I go along so it's just easier to not have to come up with a million concepts that aren't going to work for anything that happens later Mm. in the story. So yeah, it's very generic cookie cutter dystopian world is where Mindwalker started out. It had, you know, little um, flashes of brilliance, brilliance, God, I did (laughs) not just say that about myself. Um, But what I mean is it had like flashes of really fun stuff that could be great, except I gave it zero attention on the page and just kind of put it down a couple of words and was like, yep, that's a job well done. Excellent. Moving on. Um, so yeah, so the later drafts are all about actually what are the cool parts that I sort of haphazardly threw on the page that would actually make this world cooler and elevate it. And that's kind of what I have to work on a lot in later drafts. 
yeah it's like building the logic for it isn't it because you don't want it to you need it to exist almost well almost as if it does exist in real life so that Mm. you can't have readers going hang on a minute how does that work yeah you want to know how it works yourself yeah exactly and I think the the trickiest bit for sci-fi writers and fantasy writers and I know this myself when I was doing my world building is that you don't want to basically give your reader like a big info dump of information when they're reading you want them to just trust you and enjoy the ride and as I mentioned Mindwalker does that you know it grabs the reader's hand from the start and pulls them in there's no standing around explaining things you literally just get thrown into the story so there's so much action in your book but there's also a just a belief that the reader is going to be able to follow it and to understand what's going on around them so how did you kind of balance that how did you approach doing that so um I mean that's a lot of that came in the redrafting and the edits process but uh this is actually where being a reluctant world builder really helps because I know some people love world building and they've created these amazing worlds and their gut instinct is to just tell you everything about them so that you know how rich and vivid and detailed they are yeah I don't have any of that um so it's you know there is no temptation to start off with a huge block of exposition because um I don't know enough to fill that block at that stage so I'm really just putting in what I think readers are going to need and what I need to actually get through the story at that stage um and that's very spare to begin with um and so even doubling or tripling the amount I start off with still feels like quite a light touch because I am so spare to begin with um and so yeah in that way kind of my process does help it does mean there are a lot of edits where people are like okay I was a bit confused here I'm not quite sure what you mean by this what does this word mean and that's where I kind of go and elaborate um with Mindwalker specifically though there was an added element which is that it's sci-fi it's sci-fi in the YA space which can be quite off-putting for a lot of people. I think that um, the general, the casual SFF reader tends to lean more fantasy. Fantasy is a bigger market. There's just more choice out there. And I think a lot of people are sometimes put off by science fiction because is it really science-y? Do I have to be really techy? Is it going to be a lot to remember? Is it, you know, it's not something that every reader feels comfortable jumping into. And um So what I really try to do with Mindwalker is to, as much as it is full of tech, it's got a lot of tech, the plot is tech-based, I really wanted to make that as accessible as I could for the casual reader, should they decide to pick the book up. And the way I did that, or the way I tried to do that, is to really anchor the technology to terms that readers would already know. So everything has kind of like a cutesy name, you know, I just put hollow in front of things so that, you know, it's like the thing you already know, but it's hologram. Like it's all little tricks that are made to help the reader visualize what it is I'm talking about. And I think the biggest example of that is obviously the main character has a computer in her head and she names him Jarvis, as in Jarvis from Iron Man. It's, you know, explicitly said that he's named after a character from a movie. And the reason I did that is because like an an in-head AI is quite a difficult concept like it's hard to imagine like how do you explain that to readers how do you do it quickly without them getting bored and I'm like well 
Marvel's kind of done that. <laughs> so I say Jarvis, I named him Jarvis and instantly the reader has a frame of reference. And obviously it's not the same thing. It's not the same character. It's a completely different entity. But once the reader has a little bit of a picture, I can build on that much more easily than just starting at square one. Mm, that's a great bit of advice actually to relate it to something that is familiar and that we have already. Um, you've mentioned the M word, the Marvel word. So, um, and I know you've had lots of reader reviews and you've, you yourself have kind of compared it to Marvel in this kind of action packed sense. So how do you bring, and I mean, your action scenes are incredible. So how do you bring that kind of slick cinematic energy to the page? Because writing action scenes are hard. So tell us how you did that. Oh God, it is hard. And I wish I knew, and I wish I knew what possessed me to do it. I think no one ever believes me, but I hate writing action scenes. Like the idea that I would write a, a novel completely full of action is so ludicrous. I have no idea how it happens. But to go with the fact that I hate action scenes, I think they're so hard to write. There's also, I have this instinct that says, if I don't blow something up, people will get bored. <laughs> so I have to keep blowing things up. Um, and so I ended up with this kind of, very action heavy book and actually it's not that surprising because I love Marvel movies and not just Marvel movies I love this kind of like action filled sci-fi and tv shows and movies so my brain likes this stuff even if I hate writing it mm -hmm. but then again which part of the writing process do I not complain about so really is it any different <laughs> um but in terms of how I do it I think there's there's kind of two ways. Uh, the first way is that, and this is something that I've kind of had to grapple with becoming a writer, is that I'm a very commercial writer. And I mean that in the prose sense more than the marketing sense, which um, for those who don't know, commercial prose is like very, you know, it's almost invisible. Uh, whereas literary prose really wants you to, you know, think about the words and the words are as important as the story. Whereas with commercial prose, it's all about the story and getting the reader to immerse. I am about as commercial as it gets. And actually, when I first started writing, I thought that was a bad thing to be because to me, a real writer, in air quotes, real, uh, was someone who could, you know, do these amazing things with words and turn a metaphor. And I don't think you can say turn a metaphor. So as you see where I had this huge issue. Um, and so it took, and, but every time I tried, it sounded fake and forced. And so I sort of had to really embrace this. Actually, my skill, is removing myself from the novel. Like it's good commercial prose is so invisible. You forget the writer exists and you just kind of immerse in the story and you don't have to stop and think about the words. You're just thinking about the story and the characters and the fun that you're having. So that really worked to my benefits, I think, because it made it easier for readers to lose themselves in the action scenes. Mm. So that's, yeah. And I, I sort of mentioned that, I think, because I think a lot of writers potentially have that same kind of feeling of am I doing enough am I too simple am I you know am I doing these fancy things with words that I feel like I have to do and actually it's you know commercial writing is a skill in its own and you know what some people prefer one over the other some people like both but both are completely valid and kind of uh perform different tasks in the writing process and give a book a different feel um for action specifically I find commercial prose makes it really easy to just jump through the action because the more the less the reader sees of you the more they're sort of seeing the scene 
Um, but yeah, actually writing the action scenes, they're, they're a pain in the ass. Absolute pain <laughs> in the ass. Uh, to choreograph, it's like a puzzle. It's got a million pieces. You've got to remember who's shot who and when, who's been hit, how many bullets are left. It's a nightmare. Uh, <laughs> so um, the only trick I, can ha I have to say is keep it short and sharp. Like if you're losing yourself in too much introspection or exposition or world building within an action scene, you're probably slowing it down mm. because, you know, when you're being shot at, you probably don't have time to admire the windows and the architecture behind the windows. And did you know that this window was designed, you know, right after the bombs fell? Uh, you don't have time to do that. You just kind of got to, you know, slip in the details, really short, sharp, concise, keep everything moving and really strip the scene down to only what you need, only what the character needs to get the reader to know. Mm. So fascinating to you talk about the difference between commercial and literary. And uh, because I tend to write more literary stuff, I almost have the opposite problem in that mm. I am not able to write things like she sat down on the chair, even if it <laughs> makes, even if that's all it needs to be. I'm agonizing over how can I say this in a nicer way? And I, I had a, some mentoring and and the mentor said to me you know you can just write she sat down on the chair and I was like oh, but can I you know it's a it's a whole different struggle so I'm really pleased to hear you talk about that that um kind of the difference between the two because it really it's quite enlightening to hear it just said like that and you're like yeah that, that's true actually and the the thing is you can you can mix the two up you can have yeah. the odd nice sentence and and straightforward sentence and and that's what makes a nice reading experience as well to, ha to have the two yeah absolutely and actually with commercial prose the more you make yourself visible the more punch it can have when you decide to make yourself mm. visible for a line or two because then the reader is so used to not having to stop and think that when you do want them to stop and think you throw in something and suddenly it's like bam wait I'm supposed to pay attention to them <laughs> and so but yeah it's it's weird because you know with the writing world there's always these dichotomies you know is genre better than literary is literary better is this prose better and actually I don't think there is a better I think there is a difference and mm. everything you know literary prose has a purpose that is just simply very different to commercial prose uh, just as genre fiction serves very different purpose and Scratch is a very different itch to literary. Neither of them are bad. A lot of readers like both and sometimes they're in the mood mm. for one and sometimes they're in the mood for the other. And it's just, yeah, we just have to start fighting amongst ourselves over which one is better and just be like, you know what, this is what I like and mm. that's okay. I want to go back and talk about your journey with this book really because there's a line in your acknowledgements that says, these words have been four books, nine years, two years and a whole lot of heartbreak. So can yeah. you talk us through these very painful nine years and many different drafts? Sure thing. Uh, so the nine years part refers to the time I spent writing and publishing kind of as a whole, which is, I suppose, is what has taken me to get to this English language debut. Uh, I'll talk about this in a second, but Mindwalker, is, it's not my first book and it's also not the first book I sold. I've actually got two books out in Germany and one of the weirdest publication stories I think 
people kind of hear about it's actually on my on my website if anybody wants to check it out but essentially i wrote a uh, ya mermaid duology i got an agent for it they shopped it around and the english language markets basically said mermaids don't sell at the time they were notorious for underperforming and so you know we got it to the acquisition stage quite a number of times and it never quite made it through the final hurdle in english um, speaking territories whereas in germany that novel actually went to auction because their market loves mermaids and so it kind of worked for them and so yeah so i kind of took a little detour i mean obviously i started in fantasy detoured in germany i am um, it was a duo, so the first book started uh, ended on a cliffhanger, which meant if I was selling it to Germany, I had to do two, so I committed to two, so I did a whole novel for them under contract, and then I came back and was like, okay, what do I do next? And that's when I started um, writing Mindwalker. And yeah, I was, um, I was with a different agent at the time. She's since left the industry, but she was the one who looked at the concept chapters and was like, this is great. But just so you know, you've managed to pick something actually harder than mermaids. <laughs> um, and I was just like, what do you mean? And she basically told me that YA sci-fi was a very, very small market, a very small underserved market. Uh, but as we talked about, I'm not really an ideas girl. That was what I had at the time. It's what I was having the most fun with. And so I decided I was going to just go for it. And it's weird because in some ways my, my journey to publication hasn't been that hard. I think there are definitely, I think it's important to acknowledge that there are writers out there who have struggled much harder for much longer um, with many, many more books. I've been incredibly lucky in that actually I've tried to sell three books so far and I've sold all of them. And that's, mm -hmm. that's actually, it's both rare and it's very, very lucky. Um, but same time um, and I think we might be planning to talk about this in a little bit but you know Mindwalker got into a mentorship program I joined a group of writers where everything was happening much slower for me than for other people in similar positions who maybe had like fantasy novels or slightly more market um, marketable novels at the time and so for for a very long time it actually did seem that for almost a year it seemed that Mindwalker wouldn't sell um and despite a lot of people a lot of people put a lot of work into this novel and really really worked really hard to try and get it out there but for a little while there it did not seem like it would happen and then it did happen and it's been absolutely amazing since and um yeah it just goes to show that it's not you know a novel doesn't have to sell in three days mm. you know to in a multi-way auction for it to actually happen Sometimes the journey takes longer and requires slightly more tears and slightly more disappointments, a lot of no's before you actually do get that yes. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. 
Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volur XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. As we've mentioned the past submission process, I wanted to mention your website, which is has an amazing array of resources on there. But you also run a, you call it your um, sub-stories, like sub-stories, and all sub different stories, stories yeah. about <laughs> submission and so I'm guessing your kind of journey through submission and disappointment and the strangeness inspired you to to set up this blog to share other people's kind of weird stories of submission. Absolutely. Um, I think uh, it's submission is this weird dead spot in publishing. It's, everybody has to go through it, but we don't talk about it, um, which is odd because there are so many resources out there for how do you get an agent? What do you do on an agent call? Like we talk about that a lot. And then there's this dearth of information in this middle of the process. And really the only stories we ever hear about submissions are, I went, my book went on submission and within three days I had mm. 10 houses bidding and it sold for all this money. Or sometimes we hear, you know, I struggled a really long time on submission and then my book sold and it all turned out in the end. And there seems to be nothing in the in between. And um, I was in a lot of online groups. A lot of my friends were on submission. I was on submission. And a lot of the questions that kept coming up was, we got this from an editor. What does this mean? Does this mean we're about to sell? Is this, you know, does it mean we've gotten past one hurdle? How many hurdles are left? And really nobody knew because we'd never hear about that. And I think part of that is because, you know, so much of publishing is about hype and buzz and nobody mm. wants to be the person online going my novel wasn't wanted by many people mm. you know but I promise you it's really good <laughs> so you're all performing um the best parts of our journeys and kind of keeping quiet and another part of that is you know it's very much a people-based business publishing so you don't want to be the person on 
Twitter going, this editor was mean to me, mm. or, you know, this editor never replies. So we just don't talk about it. And I think that leads to a lot of anxiety. And um, especially if you're on submission with your first novel, you're probably not comfortable asking your agent a million questions yet. There's that little voice in your head that says, they're working on my book for free. Mm-hmm. I haven't made them any money yet. I don't want to be a bother. So you don't ask the questions. You just sit there, you know, depressed and crying and trying to figure out what three words in an email means when really what they mean is somebody wrote three words in an email. Um, and so I had to think, and, and I was just like, I had my own stories to share. Obviously, I had, um, you know, this sale, which is a bit weird in that I have an American agent, but I've sold into the UK, which is a bit weird with my mermaid novels. I had a UK agent. I sold into Germany. It was really weird. And I was just like, if I want to tell these stories and not just mine, how do I do it? And I realized that anonymity is the only way people were going to open up. Like if there were going to be no repercussions, no editors yelling at their agents for why did they say this? Mm. That was the only way that people would feel comfortable talking about the submission process. And so I wanted to give writers a space to do that. And so I sort of built the blog. I built the pages. I sort of, you know, gave that safe space. And then I started talking to writers. I knew it started with just writers. I knew I'm like, look, I know your submission process was really weird. Are you happy to talk about it? And then what I do is I work with writers to file the serial numbers off. So they send me their story and I go through it with a critical eye and I'm like, okay, we should probably take that out. We should take that out. I don't want it to be a game of let's Mm -hmm. guess who this writer is because I don't want it to bite anyone in the ass. Um, And what it really ended up being was a, a great database of the weirdest publishing stories you can think of. And I've had a lot of feedback from readers who have said, I'm really glad for this blog because I have a similar story or I'm going through something similar and it's nice to know I'm not the only one, Mm. which was really the purpose of the blog. So I'm really kind of glad that's worked out. It is on a tiny bit of a hiatus right now, not formally, but I've been, it's been hard to solicit stories while I've been in the midst of that debut. So I kind of, I currently put them up as and when they come to me, which I always say, if you have a story, you can email me um, and we go from there it's as easy as that and then I think once the launch storm is over I'll probably get back to properly soliciting stories and trying to make it more regular again but Mm -hmm. uh, if you haven't looked through it already I think there's like 20 or 25 stories up there already so you've got plenty to uh to keep you going yeah definitely I think it's a great resource because like you say there there isn't the information there's just the big stories or the stories that have a disappointing end whereas you've got Mm -hmm. a mixture of happy endings that took a long time or disappointing endings that were that also took a long time you know sometimes Mm. it's years in the making Um, and I think it's really fascinating to see all these different stories and to if you're in the process of uh in the submission part of your journey then it's kind of reassuring to see that it's not always straightforward yeah and it makes you feel less lonely submission Mm. a lot of publishing is incredibly lonely so you don't feel like you can talk about it you don't know what you're allowed to say and you're just like am I the only one this is happening to like how could I've had five editor calls and no book deal like this Mm. cannot be a thing and so it's nice to know that actually it is a thing and sometimes the the road is simply it's not a straight line. So we've talked at a couple of points about how difficult sci-fi is in the YA Mm. market and I know there might be people listening now thinking but I've written a sci-fi novel for the YA market. What do I do? 
So do you think writers should just stick with their gut and what they want to write and forget about the market? How do you how do you think you should approach it if you're seriously looking to be published? That's a hard question because first off, every writer is different and every writer has different circumstances. Like it's all good and waste. It's all good and well to say, write the book of your heart. Like it will happen when it happens. But if you need money, that's not a good answer. And that's, it's, in, it's actually an incredibly privileged answer. Like it is not something every writer can afford to do. And I think it's really important that we acknowledge that. At the same time, I think it's really important to acknowledge how much luck is involved in the publishing process at every step. Um, so yeah, did I write a good sci-fi book? I believe so, yes. But there are plenty of writers out there writing good books, amazing books, incredible books that don't necessarily end up getting published because publishing has never been about championing only the best books. Publishing is about selling books. It's this mm -hmm. weird intersection of art and capitalism and capitalism is about making money um, and so I mean as we spoke about for me there wasn't that much of a choice because I had really one or two ideas and for the record the other idea was the tooth fairy so I wasn't exactly pulling from really marketable concepts it was the tooth fairy or the sci-fi um, <laughs> Like I said, my market instincts are awful. Um, <laughs> but so for me, I was just like, I'm going to go with the one that's more fun. And, you know, my agent at the time had warned me I was going in with open eyes. And I'm incredibly, incredibly privileged in that I have another career. I have time. I don't have kids. I had the time to pursue the book of my heart without there being any negative consequences if it didn't. I mean, I would have been very sad if it didn't get published, but it wouldn't have affected me, it wouldn't have affected my livelihood. You might be in a different position and other writers might be in a different position in that they, you know, if they're going to spend their time writing, they need a bit more of a sure thing. And there's not, there's never a sure thing, but there are things you can do. For example, if you're picking between a really hooky fantasy and a sci-fi and you need the paycheck, write the fantasy. <laughs> like, you know, it's sometimes you have to make decisions that suit the capitalist end of publishing slightly more than they suit the art of it. I know some people would call that selling out. I'm like, sell out, please sell out. Like you'll get, you know, we can keep writing for as long as we want to. You will have opportunities. And actually once your foot is in the door, it can be easier to then pitch an editor who already likes to work with you a slightly trickier book mm. um, once you've got that pr proven track record. So, you know, I think the most important things is for writers to go in with open eyes, like, you know, know the market, know what it is you're getting into, make an informed choice that isn't going to ruin your love for writing or affect you financially or, you know, affect your your family life in ways that you you can't accept like and then if it's still you know what I want to write the super tricky sci-fi then please join me on the dark side I'm always <laughs> looking to make new friends um, and if it's not that's okay too I never let anyone make you feel bad for picking the easier thing and I say easier in air quotes because there is no easy in publishing there's certainly no easy if you're a marginalized author or an author of color like your battle is harder than anyone's already so you know if there's anything you can do to make it easier by all means 
do it. Don't ever let anyone make you feel bad for it. Um, and yeah, try to balance it as best as you can. But, you know, we work in a capitalist society and that's just something we have to kind of learn to work around. I think that advice is excellent and, and really inspirational. And as hard as it is to balance that idea of writing what you want to write and writing they always say you know you can't write for the market because it changes so often and no one necessarily knows what's going to be a hit in the publishing world but Mm. it's it's definitely something to consider if like you say you've got other responsibilities in life what you're writing you want to have a home somewhere and and if Mm. you think one idea is going to go further than the other then yeah by all means go for that first doesn't mean that other idea is never going to work it might work exactly five years time ten years time some authors take seven books to get to that one book that they've always wanted to write and time is a weird thing in publishing anyway everything takes (laughs) forever so don't feel like that one idea you have is is never going to work because it might just be the wrong time for it exactly and that goes for books that you know maybe you wrote it maybe you followed that book of your heart and you wrote it and it didn't get you an agent or it didn't quite sell and it goes on the shelf you know books only ever die if you kill them Uh, they can sit on the shelf and you never know in two or three years down the line I mean we see trends all the time I mean there was a time where horror in YA did not sell for any money at all and then suddenly that changed and now we've got you know a wealth of YA horror novels and they're selling for more money. And, you know, if you've maybe hadn't written yours, you know, on time and you tried it and it didn't get you an agent, now you have a manuscript sitting on a shelf that you can pull back out. Maybe the market's changed another way. So you give it a quick edit to make sure you're hitting everything else the market wants in the same book. And then you send it out and suddenly it gets new life. Or, I mean it's I mean ultimately this didn't end up working so maybe this isn't the best example but you know uh one of the editors who originally got my mermaid uh book in the UK originally passed on it uh they liked the story but not enough to try and champion it with um acquisitions but randomly a year down the line we got an email from her saying I can't stop thinking about this book I want to try again and ultimately it still didn't get past acquisitions but I think it's it goes to show that just because somebody said no at one point doesn't mean the book was bad doesn't Mm. mean they didn't like it there are so many other factors that go into whether or not um, an agent or an editor can make you an offer at any given time and those variables change So finally, and I know you've been working on book two because I've seen on your Twitter the other day that you were posting kind of your progress so far. So were you able to tell us a little bit about what you're working on now? Oh God, I know I'm discreet, aren't I? I'm like, I'm not (laughs) supposed to talk about this, but here, have a graphic that's me talking (laughs) about this. Go on, a little little tease, anything. A little tease, okay. Well, you know what? I I did an, uh, an interview a few weeks back and I was like, I don't know how much I'm supposed to say and it suddenly occurs to me, I could have asked my team how much I'm allowed to say, but I still haven't. So I still don't know how much I'm allowed to say. But um, let's just, let's, let's tease it. Mindwalker sold in a two book deal. So I do have another book under contract, which is the book I'm editing right now. It is for those who enjoyed Mindwalker and that world, I don't think they'll be disappointed. Brilliant. What, what a good tease there. And uh, <laughs> we are recording this on, on the week that my walker will be published and uh, I'm hoping that there will be lots of people that go and pick it up and then become 
super fans of you that will be eagerly stalking on Twitter to find out what you're writing next. <laughs> <laughs> so thank you so much, Kate, for joining me on the podcast today. No, thank you so much for having me. I've had a wonderful time talking all things Mindwalker and Publishing. That was Kate Dillon talking about her YA novel, Mindwalker, which is out now and available to buy. Thank you so much for listening. And if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Or if you've subscribed already, it'd be great if you could leave me a review. See you next time. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.